in my neck of the woods, which is southwestern Pennsylvania. I live in a small town in a valley of small towns. And we had a police officer killed here last week. Uh, his name was uh, Justin, uh, what am I going to say? Uh, Justin McIntyre. I keep forgetting that last name. I was going to say, close friend of you. you don't even know his name. What's yeah, I, I, You're so confused I, over there. I, I, I knew the guy for years. It's just Mac, you know. Anyway, okay. uh, Justin McIntyre was a chief of police for his police department. And uh, he was on patrol last week. Now, chiefs don't go on patrol. Chiefs run a department. And they uh, basically uh, administrators deal with the public, deal with the press, organize the department, and they manage. Uh, Justin was a hands-on police chief, and he was a cop, and he liked being a cop. And every chance he got, he went out on patrol. And on this particular night, or afternoon, I should say, he went out and, you know, we don't have two-man cars here. Those of you who live in big, bigger cities, they always have two cops in a car. Not here. We don't have the manpower and we don't have the activity. I mean, we're in small-town America. What could possibly happen? So the cars here are only single police officer patrol cars, and he was out. Just to cut to the chase, uh, he stopped the car, uh, and uh, the person got out of the car, fired a shot, shot him right in the head and killed him. Uh, another, yeah, I mean, this guy's happily married guy, father of four children, 28 years on the job. Jesus. And uh, another police officer was in the area, responded right away. He got shot, but fortunately only in the leg. And as they say, the chase was on. Now, this chase went on for a couple of hours. And you have to, uh, the reason I'm even bringing it up, of course, I, I, I knew the guy and I think uh, his, his life is worth mentioning, but I want to compare and contrast the different types of media coverage and the uh, uh, pu public, uh, how the public handles it compared between here in small town America and New York City, where I spent most of my life. In New York City, when a police officer gets killed, uh, more than likely, it'll hit the front pages. The next day, it'll be on page three, and after that, it, it's re relegated to the to the, the the back pages of the newspaper, if it's if it appears at all. Here, starting that night, when they were conducting the uh, the car chase and a uh, subsequent escape by this person, everything was preempted on television. I don't care how popular the show was. Uh, by this time, it was about 8 o'clock at night. It's all, all network shows. Every show got preempted. I don't care what it was. Well, that's a great respect. That, that's good. Yeah, well, they did. They, there was basically uh, a second-by-second -second accounting of the police chase and the search for this killer. So uh, that they found him. Uh, two detectives confronted him. Uh, in the early evening of, of that same day, and uh, a shootout ensued, and uh, the suspect was killed. So the following days, following the shooting, uh, just to explain what goes on here, that's all you heard in the news was about this officer getting killed. The day of the funeral, all schools are closed. Wow. Uh, a, the residents of a, a nearby nursing home which is close to the police station, 
said they all wanted to go to this officer's funeral, to the chief's funeral. They emptied the nursing home of residents to go to the church. Uh, I was there. Uh, as far as the eye could see, there were police officers from everywhere. Those who knew him, those who didn't know him, uh, police departments who don't even work in the state. Uh, oh, was there. Oh, Jesus, it was a hell of an outpouring. Uh, and uh, T-shirts were uh, were made and going to be sold for the uh, support of the family. It's just it, it, just to see how much more uh, uh, law enforcement people are uh, revered here as compared to other places is, is phenomenal. This happened also about 10 years back where three police officers were shot in ambush in Pittsburgh, which is not far from here, it's about an hour from here. It was like the whole city shut down for days in uh, our response to the to the homicide of those three officers. So I just want wanted to bring his name up, uh, Justin McIntyre, police chief. Uh, rest in peace, Justin. Please. Let's all okay. say a prayer for him. Yes, let's please. All it's right. Well, we talked about this the other day, Judge. You asked me how many funerals I've gone to over the years. I, I can't even imagine. Well over 100. I mean, uh, it's just the way the, the world operates, and it's a shame. But anyway. Moving on. So tonight we're going to talk about Bernie Madoff. Uh, Bernie the Madoff. There's a guy. The reason we're talking about it, those of you just saying, well, you know, you guys, you know, the, the theme of your podcast is basically organized crime. And but Bernie was just a, a very adept thief. Our contention is he was an organ. He was organized. He was, he was organized. very organized. <laughs> well, you know, the he flees uh, people out of billions of dollars. That's being organized. Billion, but who's counting, you know? The definition of organized crime is three or more people involved in an ongoing, and that's the key word here, an ongoing criminal enterprise. If that doesn't describe uh, Bernie Madoff and his operation, then nothing does. A lot of that, people. That falls under the RICO, then. Doesn't it falls it? under RICO, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, racketeering uh, influence and corrupt organizations. RICO for short, which has been on the books since the early 70s. Not used until the early well, 80s. Robert Kennedy. Robert yeah. Kennedy activated it. Well, well no, he J. Didn't. Edgar Hoover, tell our audience why J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't recognize it. Well, <laughs> he was J. being blackmailed. Well, Hoover was being uh, blackmailed exactly right by the mafia. But we've discussed that numerous times. But right. uh, uh, Robert uh, uh, Kennedy thought about this law for years. And unfortunately, he was assassinated. It didn't come into effect until a few years after his death, but it wasn't used. Uh, people forgot about it, and it wasn't used until uh, Giuliani used it most effectively, and that's what started uh, the ball rolling as far as RICO goes. You get convicted of a RICO statute, you're going to do 100 years, minimum, uh, and this decimated the American mafia. So when you're talking about prosecuting organized crime, the RICO statute is always used. And once again, organized crime is three or more people involved in an ongoing criminal enterprise. A lot of people think that, uh, and, and as reported by the press, was Bernie was the story. And they concentrated on him and justifiably so. People think that he was the only person that went to jail over this. And he did this all on his own because that's what he said. He said, I'm, I'm takes all responsibility for this. Nobody else was involved. But that wasn't the case. Other people went to jail over this. Bernie 
was born and raised in Queens. Uh, and he was, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, how do people get involved in this type of thing? You know, I mean, this was a, a swindle of the highest proportions in, in American history. This was the biggest swindle, $60 billion. Up until a couple of weeks ago, I'm hearing now. I was that, just going to say that kid, that crypto. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's up to $250 billion. You know, they, know. they throw around these figures like, like, like they're nothing. But he, uh, Bernie was locked up in 2008. And at that time, uh, he uh, had the biggest con in American history. So how, how did this start? Bernie Madoff was a very, very bright guy unto himself. He established the uh, NASDAQ exchange, which is tech stocks. Right. He invented the uh, NASDAQ. Highly respected guy. So making money on his own. He had two businesses, basically. His legitimate business and the business which uh, got, got him locked up, which was a Ponzi scheme. So how does it start? A very good uh, documentary was on uh, dropped on Netflix last week about this. It's a four-episode documentary. And if you're interested in this, I suggest you watch it. Because I found out an awful lot that I didn't know. Bernie was always ridiculed by his father. It all goes back to your parents. You know? <laughs> always blame the parents. It's well, like it's, kids. It, it's <laughs> blaming the parents. It's, it's blaming the, in this case, uh, Bernie, who, who decided to show his father that he could be a success. And he chose to be a thief. His father was a hardworking guy. However, he failed in every business he started. And Bernie vowed he was never going to be like his father. And that's why that was the impetus to, 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 to kick off his, his swindle, even though he didn't have to do it. He was well, very successful. He was successful on his own. Oh, his, yeah. No, Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, there were people, because I, I knew Bernie. I've seen, I used to see him at Pomola Restaurant. He ate there every Sunday night with his wife. He lived right around the corner. And uh, that's like two doors, two, two blocks away from me right now, actually. But people would try to get to his table, try to say, call me. I got money. I want to put it into your funds. Even when he, when he, bu he bought a big house, you know, down in Palm, Palm Beach. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get, to, we'll, we'll get to Palm Beach in a while and why he went there, uh, which was all part of the plan. But uh, uh, Primola used to be Il Caminetto before they changed right. the That's a long time I, ago. I, I used to live in the place. In fact, that's the first time I ever spoke to John Gotti. Gotti used to go there all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, uh, but that was, uh, the food was phenomenal and whatever other, uh, whatever else you could say about it. But uh, the, guy, the guy that's running it now, I, I really respect him. He's, his name is Giuliano, Giuliano, and he's from Croatia. And everybody thought he was Italian, but because the Croatian, most Croatians speak so many languages because those islands are so small. So uh, he had everybody fooled for the longest time. He had great think, chefs in the foods for them yet. It's just a think little. of all the restaurants in Little Italy and uh, Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, Albanians and Croatians. That's it. I mean, you know, yeah. hey, if you can cook, it doesn't make a difference what you are. You know? And they're hardworking guys, you know, so that, that's the good news. They, and you also, have, you also have to consider places like the Little Italy, Arthur Revenue. Every other storefront is an Italian restaurant, so you have to be good. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to survive. So Bernie decides that he's going to be a wealthy person and nothing will stand in his way. 
So he starts, uh, his first venture was an investment advisory business, completely off the books. If you're going to have basically a fund or you're going to advise people on how to invest, you got to be licensed by the FCC and all kinds of other licenses. He didn't have any of that. He just well, had- a question. You're saying this now and bring it to my attention. We wrote about that. I did that when I was 17, 18 with what? 72nd Street Investments Corporation. I got old people that moved to Florida that retired from the New York Stock Exchange, even the Commodities Exchange in Chicago. And they gave us a tout letter. And you, if you made money, it was an honest situation. So, exactly. I, so I didn't have to be licensed. It, nope. came, it came after that, that you had to get licensed. Well, when he got involved in it, which was the, I don't know, it was the late 60s, early 70s, you had to be licensed. You were basically oh, yeah, a hedge fund. the license. It changed the law. A hedge fund. And he was an unlicensed hedge fund. And he didn't, you know, when he got rich and famous and well-known and created the NASDAQ and was an icon on, on Wall Street, he never got the license. He continued to operate illegally. Uh, and he was making money for his clients and uh, doing well. And consequently doing well for himself, but he wanted more. So his, he opened up an office in, in the Lipstick Building, which you and I are very familiar with. Right, right. I, I met with Sonny Rasmussen. It's, it's, it's an iconic building. Uh, and to have that as an address is prestigious. We opened up uh, an office on the 19th floor, ultra modern. And the reason I'm bringing this up because uh, it, it, uh, it's in direct contrast to what his illegal business was like. But chrome and glass, everything ultra modern, latest uh, 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 technical equipment, anything he had to do to attract customers. And he attracted customers because he was making money legitimately. Right. But he decided that he wanted to do something else. So two floors down on the 17th floor, the whole floor was vacant and he took it over. And he had strict rules. He said he was going to start a trading business down there. Nobody that worked for him on the 19th floor was permitted to go down there. No one, not even his kids. He had two sons that were uh, officers in, in, in Bernie's legitimate trading company. They never went down to the 17th floor. To be hired for the 17th floor business, Bernie specified no education, high school, that was good enough. No experience in the Wall Street community, no experience trading stocks, because he wanted these people kept in the dark. All they were doing was basically uh, printing up quarterly reports on how the stocks that Bernie was allegedly trading in were doing. So and they, they had to and they were advised by somebody how to do it. They they couldn't have a come up. They couldn't even write a report. These people they, they could exactly. So uh, Bernie didn't do it himself because he had his business to run. He had a guy named Frank Di, Di Pasquale uh, who was uh, uh, running the seventeenth floor. And if you were to to categorize him, he looked like and talked like whatever gangsters look like, but looked like and spoke like a mobster. And he ran that business, if you can call it that, that illegitimate business with an iron fist. So well, all they call it a boiler room in, in the. Well, it was a boiler room, too. But a, but a, a, a regular boiler room has people manning the phones that know stocks. These people weren't selling anything. They were printing stuff. If you, right. you know, uh, uh, reports, pamphlets, everything. His 
uh, equipment on the 19th floor was high tech. On the 17th floor, and they 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 specifies this in the documentary. He had dot matrix printers. You know how old these things are. You know when they invented printers, they were dot matrix printers. If you recall the old uh, uh, sheets with the perforations on the end, you used to have to tear them off before you had. You know you can look at the paper, take them out of the machine. That's what he had. He used the cheapest paper you can find to print these reports for his investments uh, investors in the uh, in 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 the Ponzi scheme. He was guaranteeing about fifteen percent return a year, which is high. Oh yeah. You know, the, he got away with this for years. He never lost money. His uh, his investors were were, were always uh, guaranteed some kind of a profit. And at the end of the year, it would be about 15%. So people started to flock to him. And as you said, Johnny, he just didn't take your money. You had to practically beg him to take your money. Oh, yeah. He got such a reputation of making that kind of money. A 15% return guaranteed. That's a huge. It's like Shylock. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, those of you who can't do math like me, uh, just think of a hundred thousand dollars. It sits there and you make 15 grand a year doing nothing, but he was taking in, you couldn't open up an account with him unless you had millions of dollars. So you put in five, $5 million, $450,000 a year for nothing. And you still have your principal. How long so, did it take him to get to that number that, you, that, that minimum that you had to have millions? It could be about, that way. I would say 10 to 12 years, but that doesn't wow. mean he wasn't, uh, making money with smaller amounts. Oh, yeah, but I'm just saying, I'm just trying to let our audience, I'm trying to ask ask the questions that they're thinking about. Yeah, probably, I would say about uh, uh, 1980, it started to snowball. But prior to that, he was uh, taking uh, money from all his friends that he knew from some of them from grade school, his family, his wife's family, everybody. And this was uh, this was uh, for the 17th floor business, this fund that he could not run because it was illegal, but he was running it anyway. And it got to be so successful that he decided to expand. So he wanted to go to a place where Jewish society was not welcome. And that was Palm Beach. Now, there may be a lot of Jews in Palm Beach, but there was only one country club that allowed Jews to become members. And that was the Palm Beach Country Club. So he went down there. The first thing he did was uh, buy a palatial home and immediately joined the club. And that's where he made his money. Oh, but yeah. They, they to get even. That's why all the Jews wanted to say, I'm hanging out with him. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, but, you know, it's, and it, it's, it's the same thing. People would literally, and I'm not using this word pleading and, you know, be- begging him. To, they were to, begging to, him in the restaurants. Begging, they come literally they were begging. begging. I'll go write you a check. Tell me how much you want. You got it, please. So he puts uh, a woman by the name of uh, Annette Bongiorno uh, from Queens. They're all from Queens uh, to uh, be uh, De Pascali or De Pasquale. De Pascali's name was to be his uh, second in command. She basically ran the staff and De Pascali ran the office. Uh, Bernie would occasionally go down there, but he was the only one permitted to go down there. His sons never saw that 17th floor. His wife never saw the 17th floor. And he would go down there uh, periodically and just hand out gifts, diamond bracelets, raises, cars, 
Uh, and you know, to, you know, to get a job like that with virtually uh, no experience in Wall Street, it, people loved him. They idolized him for what he was doing for them. Yeah. Uh, not knowing because my new fraction of what he was making yeah well you know these people were thinking well he's doing the trading upstairs and then we get the results of it print everything out and send the uh uh, the quarterly reports to the investors and that's basically all they did a lot of partying going on down there drinking drugs everything not much work i mean quarterly reports are quarterly reports but they had video uh of this room and the fbi raided it it was huge uh, How many workers do you think were down there? I'd say about a hundred, probably. Wow. Yeah, a, a lot. And and they're doing, very- doing quarterly reports. No, we're doing various things, but it, it, it was all pushing paper, uh, paper to the feds, papers. You know, because you do, you have to account for yourself. Oh no. Uh, so, uh, the word started to get out that what he's doing is too good to be true, and there were. Uh, reports, uh, there was a story in uh, Barron's, which is a very prestigious financial uh, magazine, by a young female reporter uh, that cited instances where this was virtually impossible for him to be making these kind of profits on the certain stocks he uh, listed in the reports that he was buying and selling that never reached the uh, price point where he could say that they were successful in this particular quarter. But he did anyway. I think Goldman Sachs, if I remember right, he he reported him to SEC. There was a lot of people that reported him, yeah. but they couldn't. But they they reported him basically out of jealousy because they had no proof of anything. But people were flocking to Bernie and these other big uh, hedge funds and investment banks were saying we've we've looked at the paper. First, the paper they couldn't believe that he's 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 he's, uh, he's printing up quarterly reports on this cheap. Uh, uh, Print the paper. And I've seen it, you know, back in the 70s, we used dot matrix printers. It's yeah, cheap paper. You can see through it. I mean, it was garbage. Why, why, I wonder why, why, why not buy good paper? I mean, that, that, exactly. That's... No one knew other than it was it was uh, basic uh, screw you to the investors. If you can't figure this out, you deserve to be ripped off. Or he was trying to save money. Because I've seen quarterly reports, and they're very well presented. You know, it's in Boston Gold. Everything is. Oh, yeah. Is that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Beautifully done. Uh. Trade ledgers, you have to keep track of everything. This is before computers, before computers kicked in in the mid-80s. You had to keep uh, trade uh, ledgers, but he would do this every couple of months and rewrite all the trade ledgers to indicate how he was allegedly doing so well. So to make the paper look old, he would have his people on the 17th floor dump everything on the floor, kick the paper around, and then gather it up and put it in a refrigerator. Of course, these dot matrix, this dot matrix paper aged very quickly in cold climates and a refrigerator, it would age overnight. Wow. So when, you know, he was supposed to be saving these uh, ledgers when the SEC would eventually get down there to go over his books. Uh, two guys in the 17th floor, the, once again, the high school graduates didn't know anything about trading, but they're not stupid. They got, they were pretty uh, streetwise. They go upstairs, walk into his office. He had an open door policy, by the way. He just walked in, talked to him, called him Bernie. He never expected uh, any, anything uh, where he was not reachable. So these two guys walk in and they basically shake him down. 
They say, we don't know what you're doing, but it's illegal and we want to taste. Bernie turns them down. As, you know, what, what could it have taken to make these people happy? You know, a, a mere fraction, uh, uh, less than a, a percentage point of what this guy owned and, and had. So he called their bluff and he says, you know, you're not getting anything. I'm paying you very well. I'm paying you twice what anybody else would pay you for this. And he was. So they go downstairs and they're ruminating. They're doing drugs, having a couple of cocktails. And they say, screw this. We're going to turn him in. Well, he heard about it. Bernie heard about it. And that changes his tune now. He gives them a $60,000 raise each. And that shut them up. Wow. Well, see, that was yeah, I'm, why you were saying it. I didn't know that part of the story. While you were saying that, if you give it to these guys once, they don't go away. It's like when the mob tries to put their arm on you. But the thing is that uh, well, you bought them cheap for $60,000. Yeah, exactly. $60,000. And uh, whoever did this documentary was saying they could have asked for a lot more than that. But they, you know, basically unemployable in this type of a job, you know, a Wall Street job, sixty grand is a lot of money. Uh, over and above, like they were a lot of money in the eighties period. On top of what you're already making, hello. Yeah. He was getting the, the the feds, the SEC. Now was starting to read some of these magazine articles, and they was they started to get close. You know, we got a there was uh, the FBI had a big white collar crime division, and uh, Bernie started to sweat. And what saved him was September 11, two thousand and one. Well, because think about it, you yeah. know, the focus of the FBI's investigation is now terrorism. They basically shut down the white collar division and they were running after people that were flying planes into buildings. Bernie skated. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even think about that during that same time. Yeah. So that, that gave him a pass for about four or five years. <laughs> well, I don't, you're exactly right. Uh, in about 2004 or five, uh, the, the the business on the legit side was starting to slow down. So uh, Bernie takes $800 million from the Ponzi scheme side and invests it into the legitimate side on the 19th floor. Nobody ever questioned where he got that money from because he was sacrosanct. He couldn't touch the guy. He was Bernie Madoff. Yeah. He's managing uh, money for his friends, but also European factions that weren't exactly running legal businesses. So criminals in, uh, in Europe, drug dealers, they're all pumping money into his Ponzi scheme. They didn't know it was a Ponzi scheme, obviously, right. uh, which, you know, to, to, to fast forward, when Bernie got arrested when it all collapsed in 2008 2008 the housing market the bottom dropped out and the banks that supplied the mortgages to people who wanted to buy it if you wanted a, a, a mortgage on a house a million dollar house i'm not exaggerating or flipping burgers in wendy's they give you the mortgage everybody was getting mortgages up until 2008 eventually obviously the people could not afford to pay for the houses the bottom falls out of the housing market. The, the banks are going under. Uh, and he needed that 800 grand uh, to, uh, to leverage help, his other stuff. <laughs> to help him show up the business. 
but that didn't keep the bank examiners away. Uh, SEC finally got to him, and he insisted. Now, when there's an audit, I mean, I don't know much about auditing Wall Street, but the CEO of whatever company is being audited does not sit down with the auditors and deal with them. I mean, the CEO of the business, Bernie, did. He wouldn't let these auditors talk to anybody. He said, you need anything? You come to me. And, of course, everything was fabricated, duplicated. And he, you know, he was a very personable guy. And that was the, the running thread to this entire documentary. He can sell anything to anybody and make everybody happy, including the Securities and Exchange Commission. They got bamboozled by this guy. He was giving them cigars, tickets to sporting events. Yeah, that's what he did. He's smart. I mean, yeah. he spread it around. For Well, I think, I mean, the only thing, as we know, the economy itself is what destroyed him. There was no way well, he could control it. Well, he capitalized on the SEC audit because they gave him a clean bill of health. And he broadcast that around. Whatever you people have been saying about me, obviously, it's true because the SEC that uh, uh, oversees uh, Wall Street were here for weeks. And they were. They were there for three or four weeks going over everything that Bernie wanted to see. And he basically sold them on the fact that he's running a legitimate uh, uh, trading business. Obviously, they didn't dig too deep. They were impressed by Bernie Madoff. I wonder if he got to anybody and paid them off. I really doubt him. Really? He he was the type of guy uh, who thought he was smarter than everybody else. And if you look at it realistically, he was smarter than a lot of people because he fooled everybody. He didn't have to pay anybody off. There were uh, a couple of investors that figured him out. Uh, There was uh, a couple of names. A guy named uh, uh, Jeffrey Pickhauer, very, very uh, uh, wealthy guy. Uh, uh, invested $7.2 billion with Bernie. Wow. Knowing, yeah, yeah, but he knew what he was doing. So Bernie had to, you know, you make the guy part of the Ponzi scheme without telling them this is a Ponzi scheme, but it's extortion, no matter how you look at it. The guy's going to put that money in and expect a 15% return. And he was continually taking out money. So Bernie had to pay this guy off, basically. Now, uh, uh, Pickhauer was obviously very wealthy, investment banker, owned all kinds of businesses. Needless to say, he's, he, he died before any, any of this came to light. But he was conning the con guy. They never talked about, yeah, I know what you're doing. This guy just decided he's going to invest, keep it in for a month, take it out, get more money, take it out. And he was making profits that way. And Bernie knew that Pickhauer knew, but he, he had to pay him. So toward the end, as you said, when the housing so he was market, being shaken down, that's it. He was being taken down by a lot of people, not, not only him, but there were uh, other people, not necessarily looking with their hands out for cash, but they they wanted uh, part of this. And uh, Bernie, without it admitting anything, and the people not admitting this was a shakedown, would accommodate them. So uh, uh, everybody, you know, after 2008, the people that had these $60 billion uh, invested with, uh, with him. Excuse me. Now they want their money. You know, simply put. Should we go to a commercial and make some money for us? <laughs> you know, about that time. Let's call Bernie. Maybe he can write us a check. Let's call Bernie, yeah. Okay. We'll be right back. We know where you are. Thank you. This is Patrick Piccarelli, co-host of the Hollywood Godfather podcast. I'm also the president of Condo Security and Investigations. 
a full-time investigative and security firm established in 1988. We are located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with worldwide affiliates. Our business paradigm is simple, to provide the most professional services possible while maintaining an ethical standard and client satisfaction. Our areas of expertise include criminal and civil investigations, asset searches, surveillance, executive protection, question documents, background investigations, computer forensics, polygraph, and many other services. Our staff consists of former law enforcement professionals with hundreds of years of combined experience. Your initial consultation is free. Visit our website, www.condorprivateeye.com or call 724-396-2808. Thank you. Okay, we're back. And uh, we're into the Bernie Madoff scandal. Or what, what would you call that? A scandal? Or I guess so, right? What else can you call it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a kind of ripoff, uh, you know, if, and you can even say, you know, wonder why uh, uh, Bernie, who was stealing so much, while he was stealing his money, why wasn't he wearing a ski mask? I mean, he was so blatant. You know, why did Steve Lee when he knew it was collapsing? I would have left. Well, before we get to that, you know, you had talked to me about uh, Mark Seal. Mm-hmm. And uh, why don't you elaborate for our listeners? Well, Mark Seal is a, a good friend of ours, a friend of the show. He's been on the show. You may know him. He writes for Vanity Fair, and he's been writing about us and The Godfather for many, many years. And he called me up. He said, you know that guy Bernie Madoff? I said, yeah, he's all over the newspapers. He said, but do you know him? I said, yeah, he's up the street. His his company actually flew him here to go sit in the table next to them just so he could get to know him. Really? And Bernie and his wife went and 